0: It starts and it ends with founders. We want to spend our time with awesome people, with people that want us involved in their business.
1: We're not here to build a fund. Michael and I, were, and we set out on this journey to build Overline. We were wanting to build an institution that hopefully outlives us both and truly becomes part of the fabric of the funding ecosystem here in the city and across the region.
2: Hello, and welcome to Funded, a podcast by Pixel Recess. I'm your host, Mark Hubbard. Today's guests are all over the funding scene in Atlanta at the moment, as they are about to close their 14th deal in their new fund. Sean O'Brien and Michael Cohn are the founders of the venture capital firm Overline. They each have fascinating stories, but as a preview, Michael was both a co-founder of one of the city's startup successes and also the first director of the Atlanta Tech Stars. As always, subscribe to and rate the show wherever you listen. And please visit pixelrecess.com to provide feedback and to learn about our work as a product and venture studio. If you know of any amazing founders who are building social impact companies, please send them our way. We couldn't be more excited about the investments we're making and the portfolio we're building. Thanks for listening.
0: I'm Michael Cohn, half the team here at Overline. Started my career as a founder. The first company I started was a failure. The second one was a success. I was one of the co-founders of a business here in Atlanta called Cloud Sherpas. We scaled out of the basement to about 1200 employees, nearly 200 million in revenue, 13 cities, before we sold the company to Accenture in 2015. And along that journey, I wrote my first angel check into a company that spun out of our business, and that's where I got the bug. And so ever since then, I've been looking for my way to get to the other side of the table.
1: Sean. My background is a lot different than Michael's. My background is more of a traditional finance path. I started my career in the very beginning in the 1990s with an investment bank out of Nashville called Equitable Securities. I spent that decade in investment banking, then moved on to the other side of the table. I joined a hedge fund in 2000 out in Phoenix, Arizona. I ultimately managed my own hedge fund for a few years and then moved to Atlanta in 2003. It's now, our home. I moved here thinking it was going to be a one-year stop on my resume, took a job with a small technology company that was publicly listed, ended up turning it into a 15-year career, had lots of different roles, but my primary focus was strategy and M&A and helped lead a global roll-up of our industry and ultimately helped lead the sale of that company to a private equity fund in 2015. And I met my partner and my friend, uh, Michael Cohn, while I was a mentor in the Techstars program Here in Atlanta, which Michael was the founding managing director of that program. And we've known each other for a number of years. We've consistently witnessed both a gap in the funding ecosystem here and an opportunity to be part of the solution. And that's what we started conspiring about that ultimately led to Overline. I want to
2: go back with both of you. Neither of you necessarily, when you look at your backgrounds, end up where you are right this second. Sean, for instance, my understanding is you were musical and and studied politics you weren't on a finance track to go hit wall street as hard as you could yeah, and so i I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear uh, you know a little bit about your backgrounds where you were as kids and and some of that path up to here
1: yeah you've definitely done your work mark so i'm from texas i'm from what used to be a small country town outside of houston that now thanks to urban sprawl is really a suburb of houston called katie texas you're right i uh, went to A performing arts high school, played saxophone was my primary instrument, but played all the woodwinds and just loved it. Moved up to NYU where I did my undergraduate work, then popped around. It was really only good luck and good fortune that got me into a Wall Street path. As you mentioned, I didn't take any finance or accounting classes in college. I was dead set on going a lawyer path and had a chance to do an internship with Slumberger over in Paris in their legal department right after graduating undergrad and realized very quickly that I had no interest in being a lawyer. Ended up in this by accident, and I feel like all of my career, all the 30 years of my career has really led perfectly to this moment in time and into this role that I'm wearing today with Overline.
2: So Michael, where were you from? Where'd you grow up?
0: I grew up in a little town called Monroe in upstate New York. Went to school upstate New York, up in Binghamton. And the plan for the longest time was to be a physician. That was the dream of a Jewish that, mother. Is,
2: is that a family thing? No,
0: I'm first generation American. My family all immigrated to the United States in the sixties and seventies. And so that was just, I think a dream that my, my parents held on to for the longest time. This little thing called the internet happened when I was in school and it was awfully distracting in the midst of organic chemistry.
2: <laughs> and That's so By the I way, I was a chemistry major. I dropped after organic. You
0: know? I just had so much fun building websites and exploring the internet in it's really early days. I remember building the very first website for our student paper um, at the university. And that's really where I think I got the bug. What would seal the deal was, frankly, 30 med school rejection letters made me think about what I was going to do. And I wound up starting my career as the first developer for an international public relations firm called Porter Novelli. But frankly, I only lasted there for a few months when an opportunity to build a website for one of Porter Novelli's competitors uh, came across my desk. And with that, I quit my job and started my first company.
2: Oh, so you went entrepreneurial
0: within 6 months of graduation, yes.
2: It was your family like that at all? Did your were your parents entrepreneurial? That's a big that's a big leap, particularly if the other option was go get the most secure job you can get.
0: Yeah, my dad was a small business owner. My father owned a dental laboratory in upstate New York, made dentures and crowns and bridges for the dentists in a tri-county area. And my mom worked with my father in the business. And so the two of them always blazed their own path and gave me the confidence to give it a shot, even when I really did not know what I was doing that, that first time around.
2: Sean, what's the first moment you felt like you really became an entrepreneur?
1: You know, I think... Yeah. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do coming out of school candidly. And like I said, it was really by luck that I ended up on Wall Street. I think my first inklings of wanting to have something of my own was when I was in the hedge fund business, I had moved out to Phoenix to manage a fund with a friend of mine who I'd known for a number of years, who coincidentally today is a very prominent venture capitalist himself. And after a year of managing that fund with him, I decided I wanted to try it on my own. And so I launched my own fund. And Launched it in just the thick of just the worst public market. <laughs> it was 2001, and you probably remember uh, what happened in the public markets then. But it was a two-and-a-half-year ride with that fund. It didn't end the way that I wanted it to, but I never lost the the interest in having something. What Michael and I are doing is we're not here to build a fund. Michael and I, were, and we set out on this journey to build Overline. We were wanting to build an institution that hopefully outlives us both and truly becomes part of the fabric of the funding ecosystem here in the city and across the region. And what we're trying to do is set out something that has purpose and that fills a specific need in the community. And that ultimately grows and grows well beyond our current fund one and even funds two through 10 and just lives on in perpetuity. And that was one of the things that was most exciting about trying it again as a founder.
2: Was it intentional that you're sort of more of the traditional finance route and Michael, you're more of an operator, right? That the two kinds of expertise that a, a founder is going to need.
0: That is very intentional, Mark. We believe that we have a really unique perspective as a founder operator led team, whether the founder is at the very early stages of conceiving of their idea, just forming their team, raising their first capital and eventually scaling up into an enduring business in this city.
2: I do want to hit one more piece of history because it's important in this town. Look, this podcast, this season that we're talking about sort of Atlanta's history and where things came from and giving people a little better perspective. Certainly one of the markers on that journey was when Techstars opened in Atlanta. So if you could either one of you, both of you talk a little bit about what you felt like the Atlanta market was like before Techstars, why it could be needed and the purpose it could fill specifically. And then Michael certainly used why you chose to dedicate, you know, a few years of your life to that effort.
0: So after Sherpas exited in 2015, I wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to do. I knew that I wanted to get on the other side of the table, but wasn't quite sure what the path to that was going to look like. David Cummings, of course, from Atlanta Tech Village, invited me to come hang out in this new building and be helpful to founders. And I found myself just jumping out of bed every morning, racing down 400, just to hang out in the community room and and see who would pass by. And I met some great friends, made some investments along the line, and ultimately met the team at Cox Enterprises, who was truly responsible for bringing tech stars to Atlanta. You've undoubtedly heard Alex Taylor, the CEO and the great grandson of the founder of Cox repeat this over and over. If it's good for Atlanta, it's good for Cox. And so that was a mantra that I heard him say that resonated very deeply with me The city had been wonderful to me as we built Cloud Chirpas and scaled our company here. And frankly, I was looking for a way to get to the other side of the table and to give back. And so as they were conceiving of how to bring the program to Atlanta, I happened to be at the right place at the right time and happened to meet the right people at the right moment and was honored to have the opportunity to lead the program when when it came to the city in 2016.
2: So Sean, as you mentioned, you mentored there as a outsider, right? As part of the broader ecosystem System. What do you think the Tech Stars coming to Atlanta meant to the market in general?
1: I think it meant a ton. And Michael and I are big fans of the Tech Stars program. I think there's a lot that goes into helping mature an entrepreneurial and an innovative kind of ecosystem within a community. Capital is only one part, and that's the part that we're most focused on here at Overline. But a big part of it is helping uh, founders, helping entrepreneurs understand more about the journey that they're about to embark upon and giving them the resources they need to educate themselves, surrounding them uh, with people who are adopting a give first mentality like you do at Techstars, where you're not in it to take a piece of the pie, you're not in it to make an investment in the company, you're genuinely there to help. And building on what was started at Atlanta Tech Village with David Cummings and his crew, Techstars came in at a moment in time that it's critical. And Cox has since brought a Second Tech Startups Program, the Social Impact Program, and continues to invest deeply in this community to help build out that ecosystem. And so, Atlanta is clearly having a moment right now on the national stage when it comes to the investing market. And I think it was a real critical part. And so, we're big fans of what David Payne has done with the program since taking that over a couple years ago. And. Michael and I still spend an awful lot of our time giving back to the Techstars programs here in town.
2: So as you mentioned, Atlanta is not in the place right now that it was a decade ago, even five years ago, really. The amount of growth, the amount of investment, the amount of energy is much different than it used to be here. And so when you step into that landscape, what makes you both say, but there's still a need here, there's still holes, there's still value that can be brought that doesn't exist right now. Evaluate the market now and then explain where your piece fits into that so that it gets even better. It's
1: been fun over the last few years to hear Atlanta go from being classified as a tertiary city or a secondary market to an emerging market and now very much an now market. And a lot's gone right uh, for us. I think the combination of the development of the ecosystem, a slew of newly minted unicorns that are showing that it is possible to build big in the region, it is possible to succeed at scale in a venture-backed business here in Atlanta. The one uh, part that we identified specifically a couple of years ago was this funding gap in the ecosystem that sort of exists between the first round of angel funding and that Series A. It's always been here in Atlanta in particular, this sort of a angel round, valley of death, followed by a lot of great firms that can be there for the Series A and beyond. And Michael and I used to spend a lot of time complaining about it, he saw it firsthand, which I'm sure he will talk about in his Techstars cohorts as they come out looking for funding. And so we ultimately decided to stop complaining about it and really actively <laughs> start doing something about it. And the good news is it started a trend or it's been part of a trend. And since we planted this stake in the ground, A couple of years ago, when we started raising the fund, there's been some other great funds that have been launched here in the region, which we're really excited to say. We've always said that we would celebrate the day when founders have a stack of competitive term sheets on Mm -hmm. their desk to choose from. And we're not there yet, but we're certainly getting closer.
0: I, I reflect on those three Demo Day moments from 2016 to 2018. Mark, we would put 10 companies up on that stage at, at the Tabernacle. And being honest here, not all 10 companies were ready for funding. But every year, at least two, sometimes as many as four or five were. And the opportunities that these founders had at that moment in time were slim. It was either pieced together that million dollar angel round at 25 or 50K a pop, or get on a plane. The straw that broke the camel's back for me was in that last year that I led the program in 2018 to see Atticus LeBlanc on stage at Pad Split, which was a world-class team, a tremendous idea, a world-first mission. And there really weren't any funding partners locally that were ready to write that million-dollar seed check. And Atticus got on a plane, went out west, and I think had five term sheets in five days. And that really kicked things into gear. I remember the discussions with Sean, probably at ATV talking about it. And next thing you know, we were conspiring to build Overline to really fill that gap.
2: All right, a lot of people that listen to this would have the ideas in their heads that they'd like to be a VC. Want to see my calendar? Yeah, be vulnerable with me for a second. Walk back two years and and look, I mean, put it in context. You have one person who has an established experience in the hedge fund world and is incredibly well-respected. You have another person that has both been a successful operator and run a Techstars program, for goodness sake, and those two people ought to be able to, on a whim, hop out somewhere raise a $400 million fund in three or four weeks. Tell people what the actual process is like from the moment you decide, okay, we're gonna do this together over the next two years.
0: I think it's a. there's a lot of similarities to raising capital as a founder and founders will often hear, go get a lead. And I think that was incredibly true for us as well. And we were very fortunate to have a lead in MailChimp and in Cox Enterprises. And just like a funding round, you know, once we had those leads committed, the snowball started to grow. And we had determined that we would do a first close when we got to a minimum of $10 million. Then we extended that, we pushed that out a little bit to 15. We did our first close with $17 million, right as the whole world was shutting down in the midst of COVID. The close date was February 28th. Capital was due, Mark, on March, I think 13th. Friday the 13th, you remember that day? I think that was the last week that anybody saw another human for months. Uh,
1: Once we had the leads in place, we tapped into our networks. And I will say that the message that we were talking about resonated deeply, both here in the community and across the region. And we ended up getting in front of some of the most influential tech investors, former founders that have had successful exits, other funding institutions, and our hit rate was surprisingly high. I think people recognize what we do, which is this is a great place to build a business with excellent talent, a great ecosystem to support the founders and no real all world venture capital platform that was willing to be there as the first round capital. And so we were really lucky to tap into a nerve and to get strong validation on our fundraising journey. So it wasn't hard oh i didn't say that (laughs) it was certainly humbling and has given us a deeper level of empathy for the journey that founders go through in raising capital for their business candidly it came together really nicely mark after we closed the first 17 million dollars the next 10 came together without too much effort on our part all joking aside and we're really grateful and we take the responsibility extremely seriously (laughs) we talk about it all the time the pressure And the responsibility of investing other people's money would be a lot easier if it were just our own that we were managing and making the decisions on. But that's just part of the job.
2: So I would love to understand the specific focus of Overline more. One good way to do that and what I'll often do is just if you're willing to walk through a deal, walk through one that you've done that you really think is a good expression of a fit with you and talk about how it came to be and how they got to you and flesh that out for us.
0: Mark, we're a generalist fund. And so when you look at our portfolio, you will see a real eclectic mix of companies from a direct to consumer business focused on backyard chickens to the (laughs) fastest growing FinTech company in Atlanta today to a uh, sports focused social media platform to a satellite avoidance (laughs) collision platform. The common thread in the portfolio is that all of these founders are based in the Southeast and are at the pre-seed and seed stage and are exceptional.
1: We love having a generalist approach to the fund. We think it's what the region needs. And we like having a really wide aperture where we get to spend time learning about different types of industries, different types of business models, different founders with different backgrounds and different perspectives. And one of the ways that we get up to speed quickly is we have built a truly outstanding operating partner network, Mark. we have probably three dozen individuals with diverse backgrounds, with specific domain expertise or industry expertise that we leverage throughout the investment process. They help us source deals. If it's a deep tech deal, they help us diligence the deal. And then they lean in with their time, energy, and effort in support of our portfolio companies. And so we really like having a generalist approach. We think it differentiates us. Uh, from a lot of the funds that are out there that might focus exclusively on fintech or might focus exclusively on consumer we are developing areas of focus and expertise naturally as we get a little bit deeper in the portfolio for example we funded a couple deals in logistics which is an area that clearly atlanta is a leader in what's happening in the next evolution of logistics and logistics technology we've got amazing operating partners who help us. Same for automotive. We've funded an automotive tech company here recently, and we're starting to see a lot of deal flow that we like. And so as we get a little bit farther along, Mark, we're going to continue to get a little bit more focused in the areas where we're naturally getting cohesion of our network and we can add the most value. And then as we look into some of our later funds, it's probably likely that we'll start being a little bit more thematic, Really like the generalist positioning for now.
2: So give me an example, what, what makes you happy? What makes you look at a deal and say, oh gosh, this seems like it would be one specifically for us.
0: Founders. It starts and it ends with founders. Look, we have such busy days, Mark, and such precious family time. If we're going to spend our time anywhere, we want to spend our time with awesome people, with people that want us involved in their business. The one in our portfolio that maybe exemplifies Generalist more than any other is is our investment in Grubly Farms. This is a company that coincidentally went through the Techstars New York program in 2016. And when they came back from that program, I first met them. At that time, these cousins were growing bugs and were producing the the grubs themselves. And it was a wacky and interesting business. We caught up a few years later, right after we made the announcement of the first close of the fund, and heard the evolution. They had learned a lot in manufacturing these bugs. It was really expensive to do. And they had pivoted into a business where they were sourcing the grubs and developing a brand and now selling them direct to consumers where they could earn some pretty interesting margins. And and so I remember Sean telling us, Sean Warner, the, the founder, telling us about the backyard chicken market. Mm-hmm. And he has often rec- uh, repeated this story. He said, when I would say that to other investors, their eyes would glaze over <laughs> and they would immediately check out. And for some reason we leaned in huh. and we started researching this market. And before you know it, here we are in the suburbs and I can walk through the neighborhood and there's a handful of homes present company included these days that are raising chickens for crying out loud.
1: I, I think that's a great example of a, a deal that a lot of VCs wouldn't take the time to get to understand. Right. And by the way, they're growing like a, a weed. They've grown by a factor of five since we met them this time last year or So. so.
2: So what, what, do doing- what do you think differentiates you all a little bit? Let's say you do end up in your scenario that you swore you would celebrate. And, and i have a uh, five six term sheets on my desk and i don't want to take all of them what do you think is different about the two of you and, and if you can identify wh- where does that come from
1: i think there's a few things that i would note first it starts with our founder operator background and we are very much hands-on investors and we let our founders that we're meeting with know that from the very first meeting that we're not trying to be just a check. There's plenty of checks out there today. (laughs) The market is white hot and you can find capital laying on the street these days, pretty much. We believe that there's a better way to build or at least a better way for us to build. And that is through a commitment of our time, energy and effort, our networks, our introductions to potential partners and customers and talent and leaning in and helping build alongside of the companies who are in support of the companies that we're invested in. That's not for everyone. And that's okay. If some founders come out, they have a very clear vision. They've done it before or they've seen it before and they have in their own network or own experience everything they need to be a success. And that's not going to be a fit for us. And so I think one of the things that Michael and I, after this far into our careers, we've realized is we're not trying to be all things to all people and we're not to, trying to play someone else's game. We know what we're good at. We know what we're looking to build. And if we're fit with founders, that's great. And if not, that's great too, because we want to support and celebrate all founders who are building here in town and across the region.
2: Uh, I probably know the answer to this, judging from what I know of the two of you historically, but uh, a founder comes to you through some source. And what becomes clear really quickly is that this combination of this founder and this company and this idea, let's say this team, it, that this is going to work. That this is a unicorn or beyond. We know this one's gonna happen. And yet that founder is somebody that you would never want to spend any time with. You don't like you're not quite sure how much you trust. It's the sort of the brilliant jerk phenomenon. You know, if your fiduciary responsibility is to get the highest return possible, where is the line between backing somebody that you don't believe in from a values perspective, let's say, but you really believe will be successful financially? How do you think through those kinds of decisions?
0: First off, I think the very first part of the question may be a little flawed. I don't think we ever really know. We certainly have these inclinations and we have our own ideas of how things are going to transpire, but I don't think I've ever come across an investment and seen the future. (laughs) So I don't have that crystal ball. But more to the point, this is a matter of the type of of institution we want to build and where we want to dedicate our time, Mark. I hear you and I hear the question loud and clear. And as a fiduciary with a responsibility to return investors capital, I believe that we're operating in a market where if we need to pass on one opportunity because somebody is a jerk, another three doors will open up within a matter of time. This market is so hot right now. There are so many amazing founders that are relocating from other parts of the country to this region. There are founders that were born here and have grown up here and now have decided to stay here or come back here because things are finally popping. There, There's no reason and no scenario where I think Sean and I would check our values to only make um, a financial investment.
1: Yeah, without a doubt. <laughs> I think it's a very clear cut decision. We've got to have a vibe uh, with the founder. There has to be some of the markers or all of the markers that we look for as far as a level of humility, a level of coachability, a level of willingness to understand that get a lot of smart people around the room, doesn't mean they're going to be right all the time, but it's worthwhile to hear from those who have done it before, built it before, and have some pattern recognition that could be helpful in accelerating things. But there's not a chance that we'd back a a jerk founder just because life is too short (laughs) and because we really want to lean in and we want to help them fill up their bench with people from our network, and there's no way we're gonna willingly open up our network to somebody who's going to have a different way of carrying themselves than what we hold ourselves accountable to.
2: Uh, I would love to have your thoughts. We're in the midst of a national reckoning in a lot of ways around issues of diversity, around the idea that that genius is evenly distributed, but opportunity certainly isn't. I can point back to all kinds of interesting opportunities that I got that probably somebody else wouldn't have. In fact, the Silicon Valley ideal, right, the tech ideal is that you do constantly give opportunities to people that they would certainly have not earned and are not ready for, and they can see whether they can rise to that occasion. How do you all feel like your effort fits into that discussion? Do you have thoughts about that? What do you think the industry needs to do? And then, especially in Atlanta, the the seat of the civil rights
0: movement. Yeah, this is an important topic and one that Sean and I talk about a fair bit, I think we can always do more, but I think that at the stage that we're at as a fund, I think we are on the right path. For one, a founder does not need to have a warm introduction in order to get in front of me or Sean. We have a form up on our website. We have a spot on that form to indicate where a referral comes from if we happen to have a network connection in common. But we review every single one of those submissions personally and not only respond, but respond with feedback and respond with ideas, ideas for the founder to improve on their concept or on their traction, even if it's not a fit for us.
1: I'd say that this is a really important topic, especially here in Atlanta and especially in this moment in time, Mark. It's something that Michael and I do talk about all the time. And it goes beyond just writing a check, maybe the easiest thing. (laughs) Mm. It's what does diversity look like on our team? Right now it's just the two of us, so we're not super diverse, but that will Ah. change once we have employee number three of Overline. What does it look like in our portfolio companies? And it's something that we talk about with our founders all the time. And then what are we doing to lean into the community to do more than just passively receive inbound interest, but to actively go out there and seek out founders of color and underserved areas of the community where we can be giving more of our time. And so the way we've done it, candidly, Mark, over the last years, we've spent a lot of time listening. What we didn't want to do is lead with a lot of talking. And the way we've ended up doing it was supporting our friends and partners who are already in the community And already building to support founders of color and so what that looks like is it looks like us uh, leaning in from a mentorship perspective it looks like us leaning in with financial support for some of those programs and it looks like being always open and available to take time with a founder to hear their pitch to help give them critical feedback help open up our network to create opportunity and access where there is none and i agree that Atlanta being Atlanta, we should be a leader, not only for our country, but for the world in how to get it right in diversity and startups. And we want to do our part for sure.
2: Network bias is one of the biggest problems in the venture capital world. The idea that if I have to have a warm intro and basically everybody that would intro anybody to a VC looks like a VC, then I I don't have too much opportunity. So give advice to somebody who thinks you might be a good fit, who'd like to reach out to you, what's the most important couple things they can do to get their ducks in a row and connect with you?
0: There's more information out there on the internet today to support <laughs> founders getting it right than ever before. So if you're going to take your shot, take your shot. You have an opportunity to to submit a pitch to us online. We would encourage you to make that a fulsome pitch. Talk about your vision. Talk about your business model. Explain how you're going to go to market. Share the details of your team.
1: And Most of all, we're looking for founders who are authentic. And so just be normal. Just come to us. Tell us about what you're building. we really don't like it when founders are trying to be a little too salesy or a little too cute in their approach. We appreciate anybody who's on the hustle, and we recognize how hard it is to pitch a VC, especially when you're just starting. But we're just two normal guys. We're on a journey ourselves learning. So we're not trying to be all scary. We certainly don't know everything. And we're not trying to be the VCs who have it all figured out. Use our submission form, get a warm lead into us or a warm intro if you've got it. And like Michael said, just take the time to do the work to present yourself and your business in the best light possible.
2: Last question, I know you're trying to build an institution that's more than just the two of you, but quickly, each of you talk about where you think this effort fits into what you're trying to do long-term. Like personally, you're both at an age and a stage in your career where you could start thinking about legacy in a way. And so how do you think this fits into what you ultimately want to be thought of someday?
1: Yeah, Mark, it's a question that Michael and I sat down and talked about Two years ago at this point, the the truth is that Michael and I have been very fortunate uh, in our careers and we're blessed. And we're at a point where we can do what we want to do, which we don't take for granted. And what we both set out to do is to build something greater than ourselves. And candidly, one of the things we'd like to do is look back in 10 years, 20 years, and be able to see the impact that we've had on the community, on helping put Atlanta on the map of other more mature venture markets. And really, it's about the lives that we're going to be able to impact. And one day, we hope to see a diagram that shows not only our portfolio companies and how they've done, but all, also the, uh, the flywheel that comes from all the companies that those companies will spawn and all the lives that have been impacted as a result and how the community is better for it. And so it's truly for us about impact. We all want to make impact out there. And it's really difficult when you're thinking about legacy and thinking about giving back on how do you leverage your skills, your passion, your experience most effectively to have the impact. Not everybody can solve climate change. Not everybody can solve social justice challenges. This is one area where Michael and I, given our experience and our expertise and our interest, we think that we're best aligned to make an impact on the greatest number of people here in our community.
0: Certainly one of my proudest days was when we sold Cloud Sherpas to Accenture. But what made that day so proud was not just the personal exit, There were hundreds of exits that day throughout the company around among the senior leadership team among the early employees among employees 100 to 300. no joke just two or three months ago i got a thank you note from somebody because the exit that they had in 2015 enabled them to buy a home that was impact when sean and i set out to build this to build overline and to fund the next generation of enduring companies in this city I remember talking about that with you, Sean. I remember saying, I can't wait for the day when our founders have an exit, but we're going to help them build their companies with that owner mindset, with, with equity distributed through the organization so that it's not just an exit that day for a founder, but we're going to have broad impact, hopefully at hundreds, if not thousands of employees across organizations. So Mark, as we look into the future and envision this in our minds, eye, I hope that there are dozens of founders in our portfolio that will be getting letters like the one that I received from employees in their organizations Mm -hmm. about what it meant to them to be part of that rocket ship startup.